You're tuned in to Fork Podcast. I'm Sean Chris Lewis, your host. You know, just this morning I was having a conversation with a very close friend of mine. And it's interesting how in life when you pay attention, all the things that you really need just kind of show up. You know, at the beginning of my podcast, I come up with an introduction, much like this one, and, you know, creating some content for it can be a little bit of a challenge, but, you know, just in our conversation this morning, it just, it was all right there for me. You know, we were talking about the, the, the struggle and the challenge of changing our own personal mindset and our habits. You know, personally, I don't really enjoy the company of people who speak and act as though they've got it all figured out and have all the answers. Well, yeah, for sure, I enjoy discussing discoveries with other people and, you know, what we've learned in our lives, but always reminding ourselves that much of what we think we know will likely change over the course of time as new evidence presents itself and as we get a little bit wiser and change. We got into the talking about how 2020 has been that time in which much of what we thought we knew and what we believe to be true has been a story that entire societies commonly got wrong. It's incredible that the, the danger that not only might an individual hold on to false beliefs, but an entire society could be indoctrinated into false narratives. Society is no different than individuals. Something could have been done a certain way for so long that we or a society just assume there's no other way of doing it. The 2020 disruption of COVID certainly allowed for much needed narratives to make it to the forefront of critical things that we as a species have to change. And now, the presence of disease has awakened us to the fragilities of our systems we become more receptive of the next possible extinction event that will come from climate change. We have to really give this serious thought and we really have to acknowledge that there is a real possibility that if we don't get this straight, we could be looking at very serious consequences down the line. To me, it's remarkable that just a shift in our consciousness and applying tested and true methods that have been done in the past, we know work can change the trajectory of our planet right now. That brings us to our next guest, Eric Chevrier. Eric Chevrier is an accomplished professor, researcher, and social activist. He's a PhD candidate specializing in subjects such as food and culture, community and local activism, and food sustainability, just to name a few. Eric's gonna share some of his ideas and vision for some of the possible solutions to our planet's present crisis and teach us that it's not too late if we take the climate crisis seriously and act now. So let's get into it with Eric Chevrier. Hey, how's it going? Good, Eric. How about yourself? Very good, very good. Pleasure to, to be with you. And I see that you're doing very positive things for the world and uh, trying to connect with people to uh, empower them and to, to try to shift them into a place where Hopefully they'll be happy in this also and, uh, you know, I guess uh, do better in, in a post-COVID world. Well, yeah, man. You know what, Eric? You just launched into this subject. Like, this is it. You know what? Um, while I was thinking about our talk today, I was like, my real focus is I feel that 
change wants to happen and change is happening. And much like you just said, that we want to be advocates for a better world. And, and with this opportunity for change, we don't want to miss that. And I said, well, I have a guy like Eric Chevre coming on here who's a perfect candidate for this particular time to have a conversation with. And I don't want to lose that opportunity to share something with people to help them to make a bit more sense of the times that we're going through right now. And Well, thank you, Sean. I appreciate that. Pleasure to, to be with you and to share my knowledge, whatever it is worth, to the viewers that you have, well, the listeners, I guess. And uh, yeah, hopefully we could actually shift the world to a positive we're into a positive uh, way after, you know, during this COVID time, and uh, you know, the world does need to shift in certain ways. Uh, you know, we've been uh, doing very negative things to the planet over the past while, and I think this is kind of a catalyst and an opportunity for us to actually re-envision the world and to make the world a better place. So reimagining, right? I just actually picked up a book. I just had it delivered yesterday. It's actually Rob Hopkins. Uh, it was published in 2019, and it's super relevant to right now. Um, and it's for, um, from what is to, to what if, and it's the crisis of imagination. And you just said it. You see, there it is again. There's that theme that we almost have to imagine something different for sure, yeah, and it's quite a complicated situation. I don't know if there's anything that one person could do necessarily, but I think as a collective, we do actually need to understand, you know, what we need to prioritize in the world. And I think, uh, you know, we've been learning certain values over time, and uh, you know, we believe the world to be a certain way. And this is why people talk about possibilities, because we need to reimagine the way the world works. You know, if we only think of the world as you know, things to be driven uh, for profit and, uh, you know, if we think about business in the way that we're doing it, what we realize is that this is unsustainable for the futures and we need to reimagine what we want to, you know, what we want the world to be. And we need to actually participate in making these imaginations come together. Uh, you know, and, and I don't want to put this in the intangible because a lot of people might say, well, you know, this is kind of just make believing. Uh, but it's not about that, actually. There are other possibilities of how we want the world to orient. And we've actually been devising the world in a certain way for quite a long time. You know, since the Industrial Revolution, we see, you know, even in agriculture, that there's a way that we perceive agriculture to be. That we see that it's you know, supposed to be heavily mechanized. We're supposed to use pesticides and have monoculture farms. Um, but, you know, leading scientists are showing us that this is destroying the world. And there are other ways to do agriculture actually even stemming from, you know, ways of the past. Um, so it's it's not that, uh, you know, we're trying to make up a new world necessarily and make it to be make-believe, but it's actually about looking at what's tangible and what's possible and bringing this into fruition so that we can actually change the way that we've been living and actually, you know, have more of a symbiotic relationship with society and with the planet as well. Okay, so one good first step in what you just said for for us is that First, we need to acknowledge that there are certain myths that are around. And once we can at least say, okay, that's a myth, then we can work towards something different, which is, you just said, agriculture doesn't not have to be heavily industrialized and mechanized, that we can get our food from smaller farm sources. Is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. And actually, um, uh, the there, there's multiple sources that show that 70% of the world, uh, the food actually comes from small farmers. 
So 30% is industrial agriculture. Now, if we actually look at the destruction that industrial agriculture has done on a level of 30%, raising this any further would actually be quite destructive to the world. So we have to understand that and we have to look past industrial agriculture and we have to start devising other methods. And actually some of these methods exist now, you know, with 70% of the world feeding themselves off small farms, uh, you know, agroecology and permaculture and other methods have been embraced by a lot of people in the world. But we have to realize that also in North America and industrialized societies that, you know, we don't want to just make agriculture for export uh, purposes, basically to profit off of it. But we need to reconnect with the world and we need to you know, feed ourselves and be part of a social system that has a relation to actually build the world in a positive way. Right now, the way industrial agriculture works is that we're not doing that. We're actually destroying the world. We're destroying the soils. We're using you know, a lot of the potable water that's available that you know, has a life of its own, too. It, it, it's going to expire if we keep on using it to the extent that we're doing. Mm-hmm. And you know, we're destroying carbon sinks like the Amazon rainforest you know, and the Siberian rainforest, which was on fire quite recently. Eric, can you just explain what a carbon sink is exactly? Yeah, so basically... Um, by performing certain forms of agriculture, we can actually extract carbons from the air and basically keep them in the ground. So plants will take in uh, carbon dioxide and actually put it into the ground. So trees and other things photosynthesize, basically taking carbons and then store them. So what we're doing here as uh, monoculture farms is basically tilling this land, releasing all the carbons back into the atmosphere, when we should actually be storing them into the ground. Now, rainforests are really good at storing carbons because they have very old trees that actually are able to extract a lot of carbons from the air. But what we need to do is not cut down the trees, not burn the soil, and basically you know, practice things that are, are helpful, basically leaving the forests and the carbon sinks so that we could extract the carbons from the air. Yeah. But I think the bigger picture is what I would like people to understand is you know, we've been told for a long time that the only way to feed the world is through industrial agriculture. You know, this is something that was, uh, you know, propagated through what they call the Green Revolution. And it's, you know, after the World Wars, this has been the common knowledge about how agriculture should take place. But this is a false narrative that we actually, if we're going to continue in this fashion, we're going to end up destroying the world. And what we need to do is we need to rethink these practices you know, I wish there was an easy solution. I told you this is exactly how to do it. Yeah. You know, but what what we need to understand is the diversity of different communities and their different needs. Uh, and we need to actually look what the communities need. You know, in different areas, uh, we might need more kind of provisions like food banks. And in other areas, you know, we maybe just need to relocalize food. It really depends on what people need in their communities. Yeah. I guess the, the reason why I said that there's no one solution is because different communities have different needs and based on these needs and you know, we could look at different ways of solving the problems and um, although i would say though the way to counter this big industrial agriculture is by localizing things and actually by thinking of different methods like agroecology and permaculture as a solution towards better farming and this is something that i've been looking at actually in the course of my phd um, and, uh, you know, what I'm trying to do is inspire generations or younger generations to actually get more involved in their, in their food production and food processing, you know, and looking at alternatives of distribution and also, you know, waste management. Uh, so if we're incorporating kind of a holistic approach, we have to look at all of these different cycles. We have to realize that, you know, food waste doesn't have to be considered food waste. 
because things that are composted go back into the soil to replenish the soil. So we have to think of these things in cycles. Now, for an individual that's looking at this for the first time, it might seem very complex because you know what we've come to understand is that food is an agricultural export and basically something that we're trying to profit off of. Canada is one of the largest food exporters, and a lot of our farms are actually farms that go to export food to other countries. And uh, what we need to do is we need to understand how to relocalize food. So the government subsidizes food. We're actually paying tax dollars to subsidize farming. So if that's the case, well, why don't we look at alternative forms of farming? Why don't we actually look at benefiting the world rather than destroying it? Like my narrative goes against this kind of for-profit narrative. And you know, business schools teach people that profit is the ultimate motive, and okay. we need to compete with each other. You know, we need to gain over somebody else. And what I'm telling people is actually we don't need to do that at all. We need to actually live more symbiotically together. We need to you know prioritize the community over profit. And what we need to do is we need to prioritize the planet first and foremost because this is what keeps us alive. And if we don't do that, then we're not going to have an economy. We're not going to have any businesses. Um, you know, and right now in the world, it's quite complex because there's a lot taking place. It seems that, you know, just the streams of information that are passing through, uh, it's complex to grasp some of the stuff. Mm -hmm. you know, people are debating on social media about medical science. And, you know, a lot of these people are not trained in these topics. Right, right. Uh, but I think what we need to do is you know, we, we need to reprioritize the values that we want to bring into the world. And from there, we actually need to devise ways that this could actually happen. So, for example, you know, if we say, well, we want a world that's habitable for future generations, well, then we need to look very critically at our industrial agriculture practices and then start to deconstruct this and figure out, well, how do we actually achieve these things? And we've known for a long time how to produce food without actually having an impact on the planet and actually even on top of that to benefit the planet. Um, but these things are not, you know, in the stream of consciousness of a lot of people because we've been convinced that the opposite is true that we need monoculture farms we need you know industrial agriculture and like even farmers might listen to what i'm saying now and, and think that no well, we don't need that we just need to keep doing what we're doing but the data shows and science you know over the last 40 years or so is showing how we're actually destroying the world and it seems that we're actually coming up with these conditions in the present moment so we need to deal with this like now and not wait till later on when it's too late. Even touching this into food, uh, that we don't pay the true cost of food. We've driven down the cost of food because we put people in conditions where they're producing our food at, you know, under subsistence wages. So you know, we've, we've seen this in Canada where we have migrant laborers coming and producing food in quite appalling conditions. But even conditions of other countries that are producing the food for us, uh, Canada gets a lot of food from the global south, where you know we're driving down the conditions of their labor, so we get cheap food. Now, uh, a lot of people maybe don't know that, but you know, with this information, hopefully, this causes people to start to think about the bigger picture, and maybe you know, hopefully, show empathy to the people that are actually producing the, our our food, and actually maybe make shifts to try to do something better. Um, you know, so we, we really need to rethink what's going on here in the bigger picture. And, you know, just by getting involved or, uh, you know, by actually allocating our labor towards things that are beneficial rather than destructive, uh, you know, for even taking part in actually owning the means of production collectively. This means a lot, actually. And this could be quite revolutionary altogether.
So I, I think these changes are, are somewhat necessary because what we're noticing here is people like Jeff Benzos are accumulating mass, mass amounts of wealth. And right now the governments are doing nothing to curtail this. And uh, you know, this I think will develop into a huge problem because these people with their finances direct how the world comes into fruition. So they invest in certain things and you know, they put their money into politics and into the stock markets. And these things actually make you know, products or conditions become into fruition into our world. So this is not necessarily rooted in democracy. By me saying this, I'm going to have a lot of resistance to people that are listening to this. What do you think would be their main stance of resistance? Where do you think that would come from? Well, I just think that people have been educated in a specific way of viewing the world towards a business orientation. And I think that it's really hard to counter that narrative because, you know, first of all, it's legitimized in business school. Um, in marketing, basically, we teach people how to manipulate people to buy products. And this is a legitimate also field of, of study in university. So it's very well integrated into our knowledge base. You know, I'm not saying we should hate business or we should hate marketing. Mm -hmm. What I'm saying is that, you know, we need to reorient ourselves to understand things and you know, realize that what we've been taught maybe is not the best approach. And, you know, to do that is a, a very, very difficult thing because it's rooted in people's belief systems. So hopefully by me talking about this and conveying this information to others, they can start to think about these topics also. And maybe they'll come to realize that, you know, there are better approaches to, doing, you know, to getting goods and services than we actually have out there right now. Um, but, you know, this is it's a very large yeah. sort of method of change here because we're, we're trying to go against what people uh, have been taught for quite a long time. Yeah, it's like re-educating the consumer too, right? Teaching people to not need so much. A lot of this comes from just this constant consuming, right, of our population. It's it's constant. It's it's never ending. And that has such a high cost to the environment and and it's just stuff we don't need. But you know, you you touched on a, a really interesting thing. So, um when you're talking about, you know, this constant drive for consumption, yeah. I think, you know, we're, we're in a weird confrontation now in society where a lot of things have been exposed. So, you know, uh, for example, a lot of businesses have been shut down because of COVID. And now there seems to be a big push and pull between businesses and politics or politicians uh, about, you know, reopening, about closing, and about all these things. Um, but what it's come to realize is actually there's a couple of things that drive the economy as we have it today. And one of them is actually buying stuff that's unnecessary. It seems when we cut these things off, it actually does detriment to the way that we understand the economy because the economy doesn't function as, like it should. Mm -hmm. The other thing, too, is you know, in Montreal, this has been discussed quite a bit, is that we don't have a tourist industry. The restaurants don't function. So what are we really saying is that the businesses don't even cater to the local communities that they're part of, but actually have to rely on external factors to make sure that they function. And I'm not saying that you know that's completely negative here. What I'm saying is that it's quite surprising altogether that, you know, the businesses are not really thinking about the local environment as much as they are trying to profit off of people coming in and out of Montreal that don't have a vested interest or stake in their communities. And, you know, like, look, I, I know that all of these things because of COVID are coming out and, and really rocking people's belief systems and probably making people feel very uncomfortable. And, you know, I'm not saying this, that we should do away with restaurants or, you know, we need to get rid of businesses or stop consuming things. But what I'm saying is that, 
uh, especially in the context of COVID now, has exposed a lot of the you know malpractices in the capitalist system, and you know have shown us that we need to consume continuously things that we don't need in order to keep the economy going. And to me, you know that it, it's it's a very problematic way of thinking about the world. I think we need to actually do the opposite, but our economic system won't support doing the opposite. So it means that we need to change our understanding of how we do economics or how we, you know, perform in an economic environment. Um, and you know, I wish I had an easy solution. And I say, well, this is how we should do it. But you know, anything that I propose has an impact on the way we do politics, the way that uh, social and civil societies function together. And I think these things need to be dragged out of you know, rational conversations with people that have a vested interest in actually what's going on and not driven by billionaires or just business people or, you know, politicians that are trying to fill their pockets, you know, with business money or whatever the case is. We need, we need to start coming together as communities and figuring out what we need to do to change our local environments. And, you know, I think food is at the root of all of it because we need to figure out, first of all, how to feed ourselves and how to sustain ourselves. And I think we can work outwards from there to think about, well, what other things do we want and how do we want to see this in the world? So, you know, I think these things are necessary, but I think it's going to take a lot of discussion and convincing because the world seems to work just kind of by itself in a way that we participate by going to work and we go to school and we just do these things that are, but we don't reflect on them all the time. And, uh, you know, this, this moment in time has given us the opportunity to actually reflect and to think about the bigger picture and to maybe you know, have things exposed to us that we didn't really think about before. Eric, while you're talking, man, I'm just thinking to myself, I'm like, it's like we need new leaders, but we need those leaders who stand out so well that we don't have to go looking for them. Because while, while I think of these subjects and think about this topic, I'm like, okay, man, I got I to gotta go on the Canadian government website and try to read about the bios of all of our, uh, you know, all of our leaders, figure out which one is really behind the green movement, which one really cares about migrant laborers. And I don't feel like in Canada, we have any of those people who, as soon as you say their name, I'm like, oh yeah, that's the person, man. If you want to vote and you want to get somebody in charge who cares about immigrants and cares about migrant labor and and who cares about the environment this is your person i don't feel like we have that person here (laughs) i agree with you too i I don't feel like we have that person and you know i've been quite uh distraught to think about the political situation in canada um because you know i I wouldn't align myself to any of the parties that are out there or any specific specific individual we need leaders that are you know uh looking out for the benefit of the people. Uh, I, w- I would actually go as far though to say is, it's not just leaders that we need, but we need to be, we need to have, uh, you know, democratic citizens that are engaged in the world also. Mm. Um, because we need to have a vested interest in our own politics and, you know, not just as individuals advocating for our own individual rights, but looking actually at collective societies and how to actually make them better. And I think just relying on one person to do that is a problematic way of thinking. True. Because even this one person is pushed and pulled by different interests. Um, what I think we need to do, though, is have democratically engaged citizens. And I would advocate for, you know, other ways of doing politics where we decentralize a lot of the power. Mm. Um, you know, put the hands into the community rather than, you know, into central governments. 
Um, and I, I think that's a better approach. But again, I'm, you know, I'm saying things that are outside of the box. Right, probably right. Probably will shake people's belief systems. Well, I mean, uh, it, the po- politics has to change because if there's one damn thing that's hard to do is listen to politicians talk. And next thing you know, your vote day comes and I'm completely ignorant to the candidates because I'm just so damn, I'm so there's, I'm just have no interest whatsoever in politics <laughs> now. Yeah. And again, I'm sure I'm not alone in that. For sure. Yeah. But we actually, only... I would agree with you with that too. Uh, you know, uh, by listening to a lot of these candidates, I'm kind of disillusioned myself and I try to engage as much as I can. Um, a lot of the people don't represent my belief systems and not that I expect somebody will. Uh, but I, I think we also we need to go beyond this. Cause I, I believe that politics and the way that we're defining corporations and the problems with the world are actually part and parcel of the same thing. Right now, you know, uh, politicians are working with corporations, getting donations and all of these things to fund their campaigns in the States. It's you know way more prevalent as a practice, but it still exists in Canada, too. Uh, so a lot of our politicians are actually kind of subservient to big business and to. Uh, economic players that are pulling the strings. Um, so, I, you know, a lot of these people, I don't think, are looking out for the best interests of politics, but actually looking at a way to get reelected again. And one way to do that is to play the game properly. Mm-hmm. Uh, what, I, what I think we really need to do, though, is instead of thinking of just voting for somebody, and that's how democracy works, is actually getting involved into communities and actually creating politics on our own. You know, by actually establishing kind of cooperative work environments, well, this could be a place for politics because we can start to define how the job works and actually what the, you know, how salaries function and all of these other things, which are actually, you know, part of the political game. This mm-hmm. is you know, how we should understand politics. If we can actually do this and have uh, different cooperatives or other kind of local ways of engaging with politics flourish, well, then I think we're engaging more meaningfully in our political actions. Uh, I'm not saying, look, we, we shouldn't vote or we shouldn't, you know, believe in this form of politics. I'm just saying that the way that it's rooted is part of the cause of the problem, I think, too. And we need to think of, you know, just one vote is not going to change the world. And, uh, you know, by voting somebody in or not is not necessarily the only approach to changing politics. But we need to actively be involved in our own political affairs. You know, we need to engage with communities. We need to engage with municipalities. We need to have conversations with each other. And, you know, not just kind of like going online and voting or sending in a ballot or just going to the polls, but actually meaningfully take part in our political actions and, you know, participate in the bigger picture. Mm-hmm. I think that's how the world is going to start to see difference come in. And, uh, you know, by relying on one person to do it, I, I don't think it's going to be the way that the world changes. But I might be wrong, too. You know, yeah, yeah. <laughs> there are some there are some good people that could make some good changes. But I think that uh, without the engagement of the public behind it, uh, a lot of these changes might be quite futile in the long run. Okay. And I don't mean to, like, I don't want to come across as being negative. No, not at all. Because... Eric, it's it's not, as I said at the beginning of this um, podcast, is that there's the world wants to change and it needs to change. And I think you'd have to be living under a rock to feel that you don't, somebody doesn't want the world to change nor can sense that that change is needing to happen. And in times of change, I think there's, or in times of potential change, because I myself am not completely convinced that the, that the changes we need are going to happen. I'm a very optimistic person with life in general, but not with, um, 
politics and not with um, power struggles and, you know, and where people's caring needs to be. I don't have much confidence in that particular avenue. So, um, but with that said, I think as individuals, if we can just kind of focus on what we can do to help make some of these changes happen, at least in our, like you said, local community or among our friends, among our family, um, with my podcast, maybe if I just get, if I get like, a hundred downloads a week, that could be a hundred people who get a new message and from there it grows, right? So I'm just always trying to figure out what can I do, what can the individual do, but never relieving the responsibility of government and industry. Yeah, for sure. And, uh, you know, I commend you on uh, making an effort to, uh, to change people's opinions and to expose them to information that maybe they don't come across all the time. I think that, you know, alone, that's a big feat on its own. Um, so wonderful on you for doing that. And, you know, hopefully people will listen to this and start to think about some of the things that they've been taught throughout their lives. And I'm not saying, you know, this would completely change their belief systems, but they should understand that, you know, the world has been constructed by people with lots of money and lots of power to benefit themselves. And, uh, you know, the world perpetuates in that way. And we have an opportunity right now to change that and to actually make it different you know, before it's too late, because if we destroy the world, we're not going to be able to live on it because it won't be habitable for people. So we can actually make an active conscious choice to actually do better practices and to bring in better conditions into the world. And I think one, one big issue that I'm seeing right now is that Changing people's belief systems is very difficult because it's actually kind of at the core of their understanding of the world. And usually people go through cognitive dissonance when information contradicts their world beliefs. And what I'm noticing right now is, especially during COVID, is a lot of people's belief systems have you know, come into question. And it's putting people in the defensive. And you know, in some cases, people are acting quite irrationally and uh, they don't really know what to believe or what to do. You know, people are actually kind of disregarding a lot of very valid scientific information at the moment and kind of going towards conspiracy theories mm. or, you know, other forms of information because their belief systems have been rocked to the core. Mm. Um, but, you know, with that, uh, we should be able to understand that belief systems are fluid depending on what we're exposed to. And, you know, it shouldn't put us into moments of contention where we feel bad about ourselves, but actually be open-minded to understanding different things in the world and other ways of approaching but, you know, I would say... Uh, That's amazing. That Hold is. on, man. I got to stop you there, man, because that was really important what you just said, because you just touched on one of my deepest passions, man, which is how do you get somebody to understand that their belief system needs to change? Eric, For sure. <laughs> I know you're studied in this, too. This is an area of your expertise. So what is something, yeah. me, me right now, myself... Everybody who has ears and can hear, we all need to change. No matter what we think about ourselves, we all need to change something in our lives. And it starts with our belief system. So what sure. can I do to wake myself up to change? Yeah, well, you know, what I would say is, uh, like, it's okay if your belief system is changed by information that comes in, Okay. So if you believe the world to be a certain way and you're realizing, well, it's not really that way, that's okay. Now, what I would say is examine the evidence that's coming in, make sure that it's valid and reliable, you know, 
because if not, that's how conspiracies get started also, mm-hmm. um, and which is hard for a lot of people to do. But anyhow, uh, what I would say, though, is that uh, there are ways of understanding that there could be different outcomes that are still favorable also, even if your belief system is different. And I think this is, you know, the other kind of problematic thing that I'm noticing right now in social media is people are creating echo chambers and only interacting with people that confirm their belief systems. Uh, and, you know, I don't know what that's going to do in the bigger picture here, but, you know, we're creating conditions where these conspiracy theories or, you know, very problematic forms of thinking are getting quite integrated into people's belief systems and even into their identity formation. Now, what we need to do is counter that with information also, but in a way that hopefully people don't reject. So, you know, I would never confront someone and say, your diet is terrible, change your diet, you know, be vegetarian or whatever the case is. Mm-hmm. But, I, you know, I would expose them to just different ways of thinking about it. Because I know if I confront them and say, you know, your diet's terrible, they're going to confront me also in, in the same extent quite negatively. So instead, you know, I can show them through examples, like just by me eating differently or by me talking about different foods or other things that don't necessarily tell them that they're a bad person for what they're doing, but expose them just to different ways of thinking. Yeah, very Which good. Hopefully, is what I'm doing on your show right now. Yeah, yeah, very good point. Actually, I I love what you're saying because that's what I do. I'm generally vegetarian, and uh, I wouldn't say I'm vegan or anything, but my actions in social media are I'm trying to help people to live a healthier life, not by what I, standard I think is healthy, but I just try to say, listen, man, you want to be more fit, you want to be more healthy, and feel more vitality in your life. Follow along with me, man. I'll just share with you what I do. You know, I've beat depression in my life. I used to have carry a lot more weight on my body than I had. And so I've, I've accomplished a lot with my health. So I share it with people and I make being a vegetarian guy garden and, you know, and you'll even see me on my barbecue cooking chicken, but it's not for me. It's for my family. So I don't make it look so damn absolute, you know, for sure. Yeah, I agree, though. And, and, you know, I guess the kind of the stereotype that people put on vegans and vegetarians is to always try to convince people that they have to, you know, follow along exactly with this diet or else they're bad people. Mm-hmm. Um, actually, a lot of the vegetarians or vegans that I know are, are quite the opposite to that, uh, that actually do what you're saying is just, you know, exposing people to different ways of thinking without trying to be confrontational about it. Um, I have uh, in my life actually confronted a lot of people that have, I guess it's through cognitive dissonance, that will backlash on my lifestyle just because I think it conflicts with their understanding of the world. Mm-hmm. And just examples is, uh, you know, I've never told people to change their diets. I suggest ways of doing so if they want to. And in my class, I talk about food, but I don't tell people don't eat meat because I know, you know, certain cultures, especially indigenous cultures, uh, and, you know, especially you know, people in northern uh, Canada, they don't have those options. They actually do have to consume meat. Mm-hmm. So I'm not going to judge people on that. But, you know, we could show other people different forms of, of eating. Uh, but what I've noticed actually around the dinner table is people get quite upset and, and kind of come down on me for being a vegetarian. And it's happened throughout the 20 years that I've been a vegetarian. <laughs> uh, people will kind of make fun of me or whatever the case is. Um, and I think it's because what I'm doing as a practice goes against their belief system. Yeah. Now, you know, the people that I'm talking about over the 20 years, I've come to, come to understand what I'm doing. And it's, you know, because I didn't tell them that they have to eat a certain way, but by me exposing them to information and answering the questions rather than getting upset, I've exposed them to my methods of doing things. 
that doesn't mean that I'm right or wrong, but hopefully I've exposed them to other ways of thinking about it. You know, you just show people different things and then they try it and they like it and then they want to adopt it maybe. And then I've actually had people just come right out to me and say, yeah, you know, man, I got to really start like cutting back my meat. I didn't even say anything. They're the ones who said it to me. So obviously they felt like there was something interesting in the reduction of their meat consumption. For sure. Yeah. You know, I guess just on that note too, is that uh, we're going to come in, you know, confrontation with some major issues that we're going to have to deal with. Because me and you were discussing slow change right now. And I agree with what you're saying. And something that I've been trying to wrap my head around is, how do we go about slow change, but the world is actually you know, getting uh, destroyed really quickly oh, to the geez, extent yeah. that we need, we need drastic solutions right now. Yes. And this is what boggles my mind because you know, I, I see what happens when governments start to regulate things, which sometimes is necessary to do. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, people are pushing back on you know, wearing masks and all these other things, and I don't want to get into the debate about effectiveness, but it just seems that people are quite resistant to anything that seems to control their individual behavior. Uh, and that worries me a lot, because what we need to do is start thinking collectively about actually how to make, you know, not necessarily, I want to say the word weakest person, but the, the person that needs the most, we need them to flourish the most. Basically, you know, we're only as strong as our weakest link. Mm-hmm. So if we think about these things, we actually need to think of ourselves in a society uh, you know, that prioritizes making sure that everybody is able to kind of meet their conditions and, and flourish in societies. But at the same time, we need to actually curb some of the problematic behaviors that's happening. And you know, do we do that through discipline governmentally? Uh, do we restrict businesses, adventures that are problematic to the world? Some people actually have solutions where we start taxing people, you know, carbon taxes or other things like that. Um, but the reality is we need the solutions to come right now. And it doesn't seem like we're going to have much time left before we're actually going to confront these major problems. And we're actually already seeing some of the effects of them right now. Yes, and Eric, just to your point very quickly, um, I was actually just reading that even with the... um, with the environmental changes, the positive environmental impact that we saw on less travel over the, the time of COVID, it was still wasn't adequate to reduce the amount that we, we are required to reduce each year. That blew yeah. my mind. But there's sure. pe- people denying what I'm saying right now. There's people out there yeah. saying, oh, come on, it's, it's, a, it's a hoax. It's a... But, how are we going to make these changes happen, man? Like, how are we going to make this serious changes happen before it's too late? Yeah. And, that, you know, that's a really good question that uh, I wish I had an easy solution yeah, to no, say, no. this is what we have to do. But, you know, even major scientists are kind of baffled right now because, you know, the International Panel on Climate Change have been saying this for quite a long time. And they're not even being taken seriously at this point, you know. So uh, it, it's it's quite a... It stresses me out to think that also because it, it, you're right, during COVID, it wasn't enough. It means actually a lot of the industries that were still working are the ones that are the problematic industries. And actually, one of them being agriculture and oil and all of these industries are still ex- like right at the core of the problem. Uh, so, you know, even reducing everybody's individual consumption still didn't make it so that we are in, you know, the right projections when it comes to our greenhouse gas emissions. Uh, so, you know, we need to change the core of our societies. And that means actually changing the way that we do economics and politics and the way that we do business. 
And we have to really start prioritizing the world or future generations won't have an opportunity to have the same lives that we have. Yeah. Okay. Now we can't end on that note. (laughs) (laughs) So you're going to give me like two things, man, like two things we as individuals can do, Eric. So let's, uh, let's wrap up there. Give us Eric's top two being a, a good global and a citizen, what can we do? Well, one, I think it's about changing our practices. So we need to look at what values we want to produce in the world. And I think I mentioned this in the last podcast, but values, it comes to, like, it's not just about moral values, but what we do in the world actually creates outcomes. So when we do a job, we actually produce things, and these things come into the world. Uh, what we need to do is we need to reprioritize our values and we need to do practices that will actually amount to the values that we want to see come into the world. So I think that that's kind of the basis for all of this. And that's the starting point. Uh, you know, that's quite abstracted, though, because, you know, people probably want to hear, well, what can I do as a person? What do I do? Well, there's a bunch of things. One, actually, people should get educated on uh, different topics. So start to read about the International Panel on Climate Change. You know, start to read people like Vandana Shiva or, you know, uh, Eric Jimenez or there's a bunch of other people that write about agriculture. Um, you know, start to learn how to do your own farming and your own food production, uh, you know, and start to value that in a different way. We seem to actually value farmers very badly in our society, you know, and look down upon them. But these are the people that feed us continuously. So you know, we, we need to uh, understand their value in the world also. Um, you know, I, I don't expect everybody is going to go make a garden or, or get into farming, but I think that they need to look at food in a way that, uh, you know, we need to be connected to our food. We need to produce some of it on our own, at least, or transform it or be part of it. And if we're not going to do that, we need to respect the people that are doing this for us. And we need to understand that, you know, food is not just about selling things for markets so that we can make money, but it's actually about feeding societies and actually benefiting the planet because we could change carbon emissions through our farming practices. These are tangible solutions, but we need a drastic approach to actually deal with the very problematic things. And I think it is the first thing is about re-education. I think people need to understand what I'm talking about here. And then the second step is then getting involved as much as we can and actually changing these values. All right. So I don't know if that's too abstract as a thing to do. <laughs> yeah, well, I just uh, turn people back to what you talked about, changing your attitudes or ideas, right? People don't like when things conflict with their belief system. So, Or, you know, understanding, like, do we, do we really want a world that future generations will inhabit? And to me, this is a no-brainer. You know, people say no, then I don't really respect that as an answer. Yeah, they would be a so that would be a sociopath, obviously. That would be a very selfish answer. So <laughs> I don't think that these people should be in politics necessarily. But you know, like if, if that's the case, then I think you know this person should re-educate themselves and being part of an actual society and, and you know connecting with a greater good. But yeah, you know most people would say yes to this question. So if that is the case, well then what can we do to then you know. Uh, to create these conditions so that future generations could inhabit the planet. And I guess the kind of the core of this is to understand that there is a problem. It's not a make-believe problem. It's a real tangible problem. And then there are solutions to it also. And the solutions are not far-fetched. It's actually about reprocessing values and connecting with our food and with our consumption, our production, in ways that are meaningful and not destructive. Well put. I like that. That That is our end point. (laughs) <laughs> we can end on that note. <laughs> you 
you know, I really hope this is uh, helpful. And, uh, you know, I, I don't want to come across as being preachy or telling people uh-huh. that we're, you know, they're doing bad things in the world. I, I don't believe people to be bad. I don't believe that people are, you know, competitive and destructive by nature. I believe that we've been put into conditions that make people uh, do certain practices that are problematic. But, you know, we could change the game. We could actually be more cooperative with each other if that's the rules that we set. And, you know, we can reconstruct society based on values that we actually want in the world. Yeah, I believe we can do it. I, I truly do believe humans can do it. We, I've, we've done incredible things, and we just need some, some, some different perspective and attitudes towards it. And, and like you said before, we need to absolutely agree that there is a problem. The science is right on this, and we need drastic changes like now. And we just got to get into action. For sure. Yeah, I definitely agree with what you just said. Well, Eric, I want to thank you once again for being on Fork Podcast and just sharing all. I, I mean, again, I don't even think we covered all the things we need to cover. <laughs> so clearly it's it's going down again. <laughs> sure. If you ever want to have another chat at some other point, let me know. And uh, yeah, it's definitely a pleasure to be on your podcast. I thank you very much for inviting me. All right, Eric, you have an awesome day, buddy. You too. Take Thanks care. again, my man. All right. Thank you so much.